Our passage this morning is taken from John, chapter 1, verses 19 to 34. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. Um, before we uh, look at this text, and um, I just want to say that it's, it's been wonderful to be back here and uh, we had three yeah three meetings yesterday so it was it was kind of a full day uh, but it was lovely to connect with many of you and I'm looking forward to meeting many of you uh, this morning and talking more so uh, we love this church and we're very excited to uh, to be here with you this morning uh, let me pray before we look at this passage father we come uh, dependent needy needing to uh, hear you speak to us through your word this morning. And so we pray that by your word and spirit, you would draw us deeper into communion with you and knowing you. And we pray that you would shape us through this time, that we would find Jesus to be more beautiful and believable from having spent time in your word and with one another around the scriptures and we pray that you would uh, conform us more to the image of your son. We ask this in his name. Amen. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the, uh, the last words that Jesus spoke to his disciples before he ascended into heaven, he looks at his disciples and he says this, Acts 1, 8, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
And if you read the book of Acts, that's what the early disciples do and the followers of Jesus do. They witness. They do this in the cities. They do it in the small towns. They do it among the simple. They do it among the elite. They do it in Jerusalem. They do it all the way to, to Rome. And our lives, uh, if you're here this morning and, you, and you'd call yourself a Christian, you'd identify with Jesus, our lives are a part of that story. And Jesus' final words tell us something as who we as the church are meant to be and who we're, who we're meant to be as Christians. So there's an identity here. Uh, this is who we are as a people. We're a witnessing people. But there's also an activity that flows from that, uh, what the church is called to do. And so we're going to look at this passage in John this morning because John the Baptist is depicted as the ideal witness. The example, in a sense, of what it means to give Christian testimony, to be a witness for Christ in the world. So as we look at this text, three things that I want us to think about and consider together. Uh, first, what does it mean to witness? Second, I want us to think about Christian witness and identity, who we are as witnesses. And then third, Christian witness and confession, that is the content of our witness. So first, uh, what does it mean to witness? If you have the text in front of you, it'll be helpful. Um, the root word for witness appears three times in this passage, kind of bracketed throughout. So in verse 19, verse 32, and verse 34. So if you look at verse 19, uh, it's, it's in the noun form. Uh, this is the testimony, or you could translate, this is the witness of John. In verse 32, we have the verb, the activity of witness. This is the witness, the testimony that John gave. And in verse 34, John says, uh, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And just looking at these verses tells us something about what it means to witness. To witness is to give official testimony. The beginning of this text, if you think about it, it sounds kind of like an interrogation, doesn't it? It, you might think of your favorite TV courtroom drama if you're a Law & Order fan or your favorite version of Law & Order, whether you're an original or an SVU or, you know, a criminal intent. Uh, the passage reads kind of like John is in a courtroom. We read in verse 19, the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask John, who are you? And in a sense, you could picture John uh, up in the witness box giving testimony, being asked follow-up questions, being cross-examined, in a sense, by these attorneys. And this courtroom image is even uh, confirmed by one of the Greek lexicons that defines this word witness as testimony in a court. And if you think about how the passage is recorded, it's even laid out like a testimony. So this is what John saw. This is what John did. This is what John said. Verse 30, uh, 28, we read, These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. If you just think about it, why, why do we have these details? Why is something like this here? Because what the gospel writers are doing and, is what, and what is at the heart of Christian witness is to give this official testimony, this eyewitness testimony. In other, thing, in, in other words, these things really happened. These things happened in history. So at the outset, for us as we think about what does it mean to witness, it means that the good news of Jesus can never be, merely be reduced to something that works for us but perhaps doesn't work for others. That, you know, it, it works for me, but, but maybe not for everyone. 
the Greek words here, just listen to them. Martyria, martyreo. You can hear in that the English word martyr, which is where it comes from. Uh, the word became so identified with people willing to die for their witness that that's how we tend to think about it today. And the early Christian martyrs of those first few centuries especially, they didn't die because they said Jesus is useful or Jesus works for me, but they were saying things like Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, Jesus is the only true and lasting hope, not Caesar, not the Roman Empire, not anything else, not any other God. And if you read the New Testament and the Gospels, everything is built on the premise that Jesus really did live, die, rise again. So Christian witness at the outset, it's, it's official testimony, it's courtroom, it's in the witness box, it's witnessing to a reality that's true for all. Let's think about second, Christian witness and identity. Notice uh, this first question that the priests and the Levites asked John, verse 19. Who are you? It's a question of identity. And it's a crucial, crucial question, and it's one that we also have to answer for ourselves. Uh, so let's look at this interchange. Verse 19, they ask him, Who are you? And he confessed, and did not deny, but confess, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. In verse 20, just look at how emphatic this is. He confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And let me suggest that Christian witness starts by knowing fundamentally who we are not. It's so appropriate in this gospel especially, the gospel of John. If you've ever read the Gospel of John. This is the Gospel with all of Jesus's I am statements, right? So, I am the bread of life, Jesus says. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. It's so appropriate that in this Gospel, Christian witness starts with an emphatic, I am not. I am not the Christ. I'm not the one who has all authority and power and life and wisdom. In a sense, John is showing us that it's not about the witnesses, it's not about how smart they are, how eloquent they are, how impressive they are. It's not about us. We are not the Christ. And while I doubt that anyone came in here this morning thinking, I am the Christ, um, it can be easy for us, I think, at times, right, to look at good things in our lives, to look at maybe, maybe it's your faith, maybe it's... Um, your job and the success you've had there, maybe it's your family, maybe it's your kids, your marriage, your ministry in this church. And in those moments where things are going really good to have this lurking sort of, this is going so well because I'm just really great. Like, it must be awesome to be in church with me. It must be awesome to be my friend, to be my spouse. Of course, we'd never say that because it sounds kind of ridiculous, but in a sense, as we account for the good things in life, do we, do we think that they flow from us? We'll never be able to witness and to point others to Jesus to the extent that we don't see how desperately needy and dependent we are on him. 
So Christian witness starts by knowing who we are not. We are not the Christ. And just as a little aside, I, I, I think this is really important for us to think about as well because so much damage has happened in the church and in people's lives when this truth has been neglected or forgotten. And perhaps even for someone here this morning, this is part of your story, that perhaps for you or certainly others you know, Jesus is less believable and attractive, or being a part of a church is a hard and difficult thing because of the way that followers of Christ, and perhaps specifically church authority leaders, have used their power and authority. In a sense, as kings and lords of the church, rather than as servants like we read John say in this passage, I'm not even worthy to take off his dusty, dirty, smelly sandals. Do you know who you're not? Okay, so we are not the Christ, but then who are we? Well, the religious leaders asked John uh, in verse 22, okay, who then are you? What do you say about yourself? And John answers in the following verse, quoting from Isaiah 40, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John is a voice in the wilderness. And I think that's a good image for us to think about as well. Uh, The word wilderness could also be translated desert, and it's an image that's used throughout the Bible. It's often associated with hardship, with suffering, with lack. It's a place of temptation. It's a place where the Lord teaches his people that they are dependent upon him for their daily bread. It's also a place where our sinful hearts are often exposed. The wilderness, the desert, it's a good depiction of this fallen world. And so let's think for a minute, why is the world so messed up? It's really easy uh, to scan the past decade of news let alone even just think about our own lives and things that are happening in our own lives and ask weighty questions like, why is my marriage so hard? Why am I still single? Why am I so lonely? Why is this thing happening to my child? Why is it that I continually give myself to desires that are destroying me? In the midst of the wilderness, in the midst of the desert, John is giving voice to this one that Isaiah says is coming to make streams flow in the desert. And this one who is going to make this wilderness become this beautiful, fruitful field. And let me suggest that this is how we ought to think of ourselves as witnesses. As we walk through this wilderness desert world, we give voice to the king who has come and will return. Our neighbors, our friends, our family, all the people around us, they live in this broken world with us. With these people, Christian and non-Christian, we we share a humanity as those created in God's image. We share that we live in a world of hardship and suffering. We share in that we will face death should the Lord not return in our lifetime. We share this. In humility, we recognize that we are not the Christ in hope we point forward to the one who is coming to make all things new. Third, um, let's think about Christian witness and our confession. And again, by that I'm thinking, what is the content of our witness? And there's three things that we can identify from this passage that John points to. 
that I think for helpful, are helpful for us to consider. So first, Jesus forgives sin. John 1, 29. John sees Jesus coming toward him, and you could translate this verse this way. Look, the Lamb of the God, the one who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one who comes to deal with sin. Sin in the singular, not just plural as in, you could think, you know, the results of sin, but the root cause. This is the one who comes to bear the guilt and the condemnation to take away sin's curse, that his blessings could flow far as the curse is found. He is the Lamb. And you can hear reference to that famous passage in Isaiah 53 where the prophet says, Though we have all gone astray, though we have all turned to live and do whatever pleases us, though we are guilty of transgression and iniquity, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was like a lamb led before its shearers being silent. He didn't open his mouth. This is what John is pointing to. This, this is the lamb through whom people like you and me can be declared righteous before God, through whom our sins can be forgiven, our shame covered, our sin atoned for. Second, Jesus is the eternal Son. So right after John calls Jesus the Lamb of God, in verse 30, he says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. And then at the end of the passage, in verse 34, John ends his testimony uh, saying of Jesus, this is the Son of God. And here John is connecting to what, to what has uh, been uh, written earlier in, in uh, chapter 1 of this gospel where John talks about um, the Word who was in the beginning, who was with God, and who was God. I want to draw out one reason why I think this really matters, this idea that Jesus is the eternal Son. Um, and if you will allow me for a second to be a little bit nerdy. Uh, there's this great quote by Herman Bovink in his Reform Dogmatics where he makes this statement. I told you it was going to be nerdy. Um, All peoples either pantheistically pull God down into what is creaturely or deistically elevate him endlessly above it. Let me translate that. What Bovink is saying is this. This is what people tend to do with God. Either we tend to take God and pull him down, and he's like a bigger version of us. Or we so deistically elevate him above us, he's so great and grand, that you could reason in a sense, God doesn't care about your life, the little details of your life. Bavink goes on and he says this, in neither case does one arrive at fellowship, at covenant. Scripture insists on both. God is infinitely great and condescendingly good. He is sovereign, but he is also father. In a word, he is the God of the covenant. And if you think about what he's saying there, that is so beautiful, because what he's saying is, yes, God is infinitely great, and he's different from us. He is God, and we are creatures, but he cares deeply about us, and is deeply committed to this world. He is the God of the covenant. He is the God who binds himself freely to redeem his people. And if God were not like this, then he's either this far-removed, deistic kind of God who cares little, or he's a God who's near and he's close, but he's stuck in the same mess that all of our lives are a part of. But the God of the Bible 
is a God who exists outside of this world. And so what that means is that he can actually enter in and help us. Jesus is the eternal son who has taken on flesh and dwelt among us. And third, um, Jesus can actually change us. So if you look at verse 33 of this passage, John says, This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Just a couple chapters later in John's Gospel, one of the most famous passages, uh, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, Jesus is going to talk about the Holy Spirit again, and he's going to make reference, he's going to allude to this passage in the Old Testament in Ezekiel 36. And in that chapter, this is what God promises. He says this, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And in the following chapter in Ezekiel 37, you get this picture of what this looks like. God's people are depicted as this valley of dry bones, dead, dusty, dry bones. And in a sense, like, you can't get any more dead than this. And God asks Ezekiel this question, can these bones live? And Ezekiel, we would think, no way. Ezekiel says, Lord, you know. And then what happens is God's word goes out in the power of the Spirit, and resurrection life comes. And the message is clear. God can take these dusty, dry, dead bones, and he can bring life, which means that he can make us alive. He can revive us. He can transform us. He can change us. Let's just hit the pause button for a second. Isn't this exactly what every person needs. Every person you know in your life, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, people around this church, don't they need this? Isn't, isn't this what you need and I need? Don't we need someone who can enter in from the outside and help us? Someone who has all power and authority but yet cares? Don't we need cleansing and forgiveness? Don't we wish that we could change, and that there was actual hope for the, the places where we feel really discouraged and hopeless, that there was actually hope for real change. This is where we come full circle because as we are looking to Jesus as someone who desperately needs him, then we will grow in humility. We will know deep down that we are not the Christ. We are not the ones who can change other people, who can fix them, but we are voices crying out in the midst of the wilderness, pointing to the one who can actually help us, and it will come from the depths of our being because he helps us. Let me draw your attention to one final detail. Uh, in verse 26, as John is being questioned by the religious leaders, he makes this statement. Among you stands one you do not know. It's really interesting, right? John is witnessing about Jesus, and Jesus is right there. He's in the midst of this crowd. And interestingly, John will use the same phrase at the end of his gospel in chapter 20, where the risen Jesus will appear standing in the midst of his disciples. And in both of these scenes, the disciples, they are, they are scared, they are terrified, the doors are locked. But then all of a sudden, Jesus comes and stands among them. And I think what John wants us to see and realize is Jesus 
is in our midst. Do you know that? Do you know that Jesus is in our midst, present by his Spirit, empowering and using us? Do you realize that the same Spirit who empowered the early church to fulfill their calling, to be Jesus' witnesses, that same Spirit is at work here in this place. Do you know that God is with you? Um, Band of Brothers was a fantastic HBO miniseries, still one of my favorite miniseries that they've done. It was released in the early 2000s. Perhaps someone in here has seen it. It follows Easy Company of the 101st Airborne Division during World War II. Begins with their training, and then when they parachute into France the night before D-Day, and then all the way through the end of the war. And early on, when they are in France, uh, just days after D-Day, one of the soldiers, a guy named Private Blythe, becomes so terrified that he starts to break down. He is paralyzed with fear. He has no ability to fight. He has no strength. He's so afraid that for a short period of time, he actually loses his sight, and he can't see. And there's this scene early on where he's in his foxhole, and there's a battle raging around, and and bombs are going off, and bullets are flying everywhere, and he's curled up in a ball at the bottom of his foxhole, just crying out in agony. But everything changes when this guy, Captain Winters, is standing next to him. So throughout the whole series, Winters is the exact kind of person that you want to lead your unit because he's the one who puts the unit's interests above his own. He sacrifices. He's the one who runs into battle first, hundreds of yards before anyone else. The guys, these old guys who reflect on their time and it say, I don't know how he survived. This is Winters, and there's this great scene where Winters pulls Blythe up, and he's standing with zero foxhole coverage, and he's just firing, and he's saying to Blythe, come on, Blythe, come on, let him have it. And Blythe is like really timidly like squeezing off a few rounds, and it's this beautiful picture of here's this guy who is completely paralyzed, and he's ill-equipped, and he's not ready for the battle, but he's actually engaged because Winters is with him. I don't know like where you are as you think about, man, the the places where I feel ill-equipped to be a witness, or the places where I feel ill-equipped to just live the Christian life, or the places where you are just really struggling and fearful, or just in hardship right now, but there is one in our midst. Do you see that? There is one in our midst who says to us, give yourself to this mission. Give yourself to my calling over your life, and I will never leave you or forsake you, and I will be with you until the end of the age. Amen. Um, Let me invite you at this time to uh, take a moment. We'll spend a few moments of time and uh, confession and reflection as uh, as we think about God's word to us this morning. Lord, we thank you for your scriptures and for your grace to us that you um, reveal things to us, 
that we, that we need to hear, that you speak to us, that we might be encouraged and lifted up, that you give us the things that we so desperately need. Um, we thank you for your grace to us, that you call us each week to come into your presence, regardless of what's happened the previous week. You refresh us, you restore us, you forgive us, you send us out again as those reminded of your grace. And so uh, would you do that again for us uh, this day, that we might glorify you, uh, that you might uh, be reflected and glorified in all we do. Uh, we ask this in your name. Amen. Let's hear the, uh, the good news of the gospel from Isaiah 53, verse 6, and John 129. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Christ, your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.